We are going to be in Deuteronomy here in just a moment, chapter 9, so you can start making your way over there. Um, but we did have um, two of our uh, three teams. We already have some individuals that have made it out onto the mission field for their summer of missions. Um, but we had the team that was going to West Bank. They are in Tel Aviv, hopefully asleep right now. And um, then we have the other group that is, um, they're, they're in flight on their way over there to go into Galilee. So we had a team going to West Bank, a team going into Galilee. So um, yeah, be praying um, for, for the harvest of souls and for their protection. And um, we're going to do that in, in just a moment. But um, Deuteronomy 9 through 15 is where we're going to be trying to get through. Um, so if you haven't been joining us, what we do on this night is we kind of take large sections and survey. I typically am more ambitious than I can actually, in, in what I'm going to cover, than what I actually cover. So um, probably not going to get to 15, but in my study, I felt ambitious. So I studied for it. We'll see how far we get. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe it is holy. We believe it is true. And even this old covenant... We just read of how you established the new covenant, but even this old covenant, Lord, so good for us to read and hear and to learn of those principles, those aspects of your character and nature that change not, those truths of how your people are to live that they carry over from one covenant to another. The specifics may have changed, Lord, but obedience and love and service and fearing you and loving people, these things are the same, Lord. So may we learn, may we glean from you. We pray for the, the middle schoolers and high schoolers, that large crowd of them that just walked out of this room. Lord, touch their hearts, touch their minds. Just seal their hearts for you, Lord. We know how the world is after them, and we know how the enemy would love to corrupt them. But Lord, we pray that you would sanctify them. We pray, Lord, that you would... You would so speak to their hearts and their minds that, Lord, no amount of lying would ever deceive them. Um, and we know that the enemy is doing a great and terrible work in this world today. But we pray for them, Lord, that they're here sitting under your word. They're worshiping. They just ate the body and blood of your son. Lord, seal their hearts for heaven, we pray. And, uh, Lord, we pray for these teams that have just arrived and are en route to Israel. We pray you'd protect them, you'd keep them safe. We pray, Lord Jesus, that they would bear much fruit for your kingdom and glory, that their hearts would be set ablaze for you, that they would walk in unity. You'll keep them healthy, and we ask that you bring them back safely. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, turn with me there to Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we'll see how far we're going to get. Uh, this is the second giving of the law. This is 40 years after um, they had sinned at Kadesh Barnea. When God sent the 12 spies into the land, 10 came back, said, we can't do it. The giants and the walls are too big. The congregation was persuaded to not go in. So they did not go in. Um, and the Lord said, okay, for each day you spied out the land, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness um, Wandering, They were in the land 40 days, spying it out 40 years until that generation that was 20 years and older all passed away. So this was really a 40 years worth of a, a death march 
um, throughout the wilderness until that older generation. They suffered the consequences for their disbelief. Their lack of belief did not allow them to go into the fullness and the blessing of all that God had intended for them. So now here we are. If you read this, you're like, golly, why did they put this in here twice? Well, there's 40 years in between and they weren't walking around with the pocketbook of the law. And so it's quite significant that the law is being given to them again prior to going into the land. And you're going to hear a repeated theme and you've probably picked it up already. When you get in the land, don't sin and don't forget. And we'll see some more of these uh, same ideas being spoken of. So we're going to talk about promises. We're going to talk about warnings. We're going to talk about remembering here this evening. So in chapter 9, the promised land, um, we're going to learn, is a result of God's grace. And so we begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and to go in to dispossess Nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. Tall walls. That's, think Jericho. A people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Verse 3, therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, bringing them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that they may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. That's like the third time he said that. Okay, we're getting it. He says, for you. you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord. And we'll, we'll come back to that section in just a moment. So they're not going to get the land because they are a better people, because they, are, they had attained to some standard that no other group of people had attained to. That's not why. It's because of the wickedness and the evil of those seven nations that were in the land, um, some of which, of course, was slavery. It was, um, uh, it was rape. It was offering up children um, and sacrifices to death to their gods and many other sexual perversions. And so these are the reasons why this judgment came. We talked last week how the Lord said, now, if you do the same things, you're going to be judged too. If, you, if, if you're going to become wicked like them, then you will be judged like them. You're not going in because you're a better people. You're going in because I'm going to dispossess them and give you this land. And so he's wanting them to remain humble. He's wanting them to be humble in their hearts and in their lives. He says they were stiff-necked. They were unwilling to bend and follow. Well, you may say, in what way? Well, remember, verse 7, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. 
from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. It's like, you have been, you've been, you know, bad kids. You have like provoked me over and over again. You've been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb or Mount Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. And then he, Moses is going to go in and he's going to rehearse how he interceded for them and, and God chose not to destroy them, but to, to be patient with them. Um, there at Mount Sinai, the thing that they had committed, which was so terrible, was they had made that golden calf. And they began to worship that golden calf saying, oh, you are the one who led us out of Israel, out of Egypt. And they were worshiping. And so uh, Moses speaks of that failure. Now in verses 22 um, uh, down to verse 28, he, he mentions a few other failures. Um, he talks about the failure at Tibera. Uh, Tibera, this is recorded in Numbers 11. The people complained against the Lord and fire broke out among the people. And, I, you know, there's just such an imagery there. Whiners and complainers are going to get burnt. That's what's going to happen. And you're, you're not going to, I mean, it, it does damage to yourself. I mean, find a, a whiner and a complainer and you're not going to find a joyful soul. And so... Um, you know, they end up burning themselves. Um, obviously, this was a literal burning. Um, I'm speaking figurative as we apply it to ourselves. And uh, Massa, uh, which the word means strife, Tibera means burning, by the way. Um, Massa means uh, strife, Exodus 17, 1 through 11. Um, they were questioning the Lord and whether or not he loved them and he would provide for them. And that's where the water uh, came from the rock the first time. Um, uh, Kibroth Hatavah means graves of greed. Graves of greed. And this is where they were longing, Numbers eleven thirty-one through 35, uh, for meat. They were tired of the manna. They didn't want it anymore. It was God's provision for them, the miraculous supply, and they were sick and tired of it. And this is what they were collecting every morning. And they were eating this, and so they wanted meat. The Lord sent meat, and that ended up now resulting in a plague that came upon them. So, yeah, th this is, he says, you've, you've, you've made some big mistakes, okay, all over the place. The last big mistake you made was at Kadesh Barnea, Numbers chapter 13, and I already talked about that. The ten spies turned the heart of the entire congregation to not believe in God, that if they were to go into the land, that he would be able to give them victory over these giant walls and over the giant men like Goliath that were in the land. Um, not to say Goliath was alive at this time, but that kind of individual. And so they ended up spending 40 years in the wilderness. So he's like, you're, you're not more righteous. And let me give you some reminders. Let me give you some things to think about. And so he did. Uh, verses 25 through 29, you have Moses and his intercession for Israel. Um, and what a great leader he was. And you can read of that. Verse, uh, at ver beginning at verse 25, it says, I prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. So, I mean, he just is, is he's pleading for them on their behalf. And the Lord relents from doing harm and destroying them. 
So the question here from chapter 9 that I want to ask is, how should we look back on our failures? I think there's a healthy way to look back on our failures, and there's an unhealthy way to look back. One way to look back that would be unhealthy on your failures is to see the mistakes that you've made and and conclude that your life is a waste and that you'll never amount to anything, that God must want nothing to do with you, and you would walk in condemnation. Again, the difference between condemnation and conviction is condemnation can look at the same scene as as, um, conviction can, but condemnation's voice sends you running from the Lord. Conviction's voice, that's the Lord's voice, will bring you to him. Condemnation's voice can be yours, it can be another person, and it certainly is Satan that will whisper in your ear and say, you're just not worth it. God was done with you, he never wants you. Now that is not what God is trying to accomplish here, is it? It's the very opposite. God is trying to remind them of their failures that they might be humble before him so that they don't enter into the same sin as these people, that they would know that they're vulnerable and they're capable of making a mistake just like those um, uh, that had gone before them in their family, that they might stay in the land, that they might receive the blessing. So the condemnation was not to sin or the... The, the rehearsal of their sin was not to re, uh, send them running, but to, to humble them. So certainly thinking back, if you're pondering your past, and the more you think about it, the more you feel like you should just quit being a Christian, then you know that's not conviction. That's condemnation. Conviction can bring uh, a brokenness. James says, weep, howl, and lament. That's brokenness. But It's not a brokenness that sends you running away from the Lord. It sends you running to the Lord. So just to to understand, because maybe as we read this, you're like, yeah, I've been pondering all my failures, and I pretty much have concluded there's no way I can do this. No, look at your failures that you, you have walked in and be humble before the Lord and say, I never want to do this again. Strengthen me. I see how vulnerable I am. And so I'm going to stay far away from all of those things that caused me to be um, vulnerable to to falling. So, um, yeah, produce humility in us to serve as a warning as we go forward. And it also, though, will help us to have a proper attitude um, towards others. Um, So... He says, as you look at them, don't think that you're better than them. Okay, so he's helping. He wants them to have a proper view of themselves, but he's also getting a proper view of these. He says, look, look, they're going to suffer. They're going to, you know, uh, have to deal with this. So having a good view of our past failures through the lens of the Lord will help us to walk humbly, and it'll help us to rightly evaluate those that are around us in sinning. It's like, I don't want to do what they've done. So we don't get haughty. We don't feel like we're better than them. We are a stiff-necked people. We make the same kinds of mistakes. Um, we have our own, you know, uh, Kadesh Barneas to worry about, okay? We have our own, I don't like your provision moments, and we begin to whine to the Lord. So it should keep us humble. Uh, chapter 10 of uh, Deuteronomy. 
So as Moses came down off Mount Sinai in chapter 9, he says, yeah, I threw the, the Ten Commandments written on stone with the finger of God. I threw them down and broke them. So in chapter 10, um, we read, verse 1, At that time the Lord said to me, Hew for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and make yourself an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, a rectangular box. Okay, this is what he made. Two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. We read these last in our last study. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. So, um, if the Ark of the Covenant is uh, ever, you know, here's the question, where's the Ark of the Covenant? And the answer is nobody knows. Um, some people say it's in Ethiopia. Uh, some people say it's, you know, hidden under one of the caves or tunnels there in Jerusalem under the Temple Mount. Um, others say that it's in the Vatican. Um, I don't know. It could choose your spot. These are probably three of the common. Uh, it's taken by, you know, the Babylonians melted down. Um, who knows? But the, the, we don't know where it is. Um, so if it's been uh, kept intact, then you would find a couple of things in there. You'd find these, the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. You would find a jar of manna, and you'd find Aaron's rod, his staff that blossomed and flowered. These Three things are there in the Ark of the Covenant. But it is interesting. In the Ark of the Covenant, where the, is, where the blood is going to be sprinkled from the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement once a year. And so you have the Ten Commandments. And you have a lid on top of this Ark. Does anybody know what the lid is called? The mercy seat. It's not a chair. I'm not trying to, you know, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's that which is seated upon the Ark, okay? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Under the mercy seat is the Ten Commandments, which we all have broken. And there on top is the mercy seat. And I'm not going to take the time, but if you work this out through the New Testament, the different languages, it's the word propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. It's his blood that was shed and sprinkled. But the high priest would go in once a year and he'd sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, um, covering that those Ten Commandments, which were broken. So you have this powerful imagery that, that is going on with uh, this ark, this rectangular box. It has these Ten Commandments in there. I mean, who knows? But can you imagine if they were, if somebody found these? I mean, what? I mean, that would be, I, Indiana Jones did not find it. And, um, you know, he didn't find it. And and he said they were broken uh, pieces from the first, <laughs> from the first writing. He got that wrong too. So uh, don't use Hollywood to try and help you figure this out. But this is um, this is a, a, an amazing moment. This is the portion of Scripture that God did not have anybody write for him. He wrote it himself. Pretty amazing. Verses twelve through twenty-two. 
um, a, a section of scripture, particularly verses 12 and 13, if you read those with me. Um, and, and here you get the requirements of God for Israel. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Kind of reminds you of, you know, Micah. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and, number five, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So fear God. Have a reverence for him. Walk in his ways. The result of having a fear of God is that you will walk in his ways. I don't, I'm not going to pretend like there's a, an order here. There could be. It's not one that I really know. But I mean, if you walk in the ways in the Lord, it is easy to love him, isn't it? The longer you walk in the ways of the Lord, the more you see the wisdom and the blessing and the protection of that. And you love him. And if you love him, you're going to serve him. Um, number four, you're, you're going to worship him. You're going to give of yourself for the purposes, the things that are important to him. And it should be done with our entire person. There is uh, no holding back, despite what we hear so often. Um, this is a, a you know, theme that's just really come alive as we've gone through the Old Testament here. So third time, fourth time going through. First time we went through the Old Testament, we taught. Third time we went through the Old Testament, we taught it um, one book a night. But going through this again, I, you know, the, the words that the Lord spoke to um, through Jethro to Moses was, he goes, hey, you doing and doing all this, you know, um, legislating and doing all this judging yourself is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear these people out. So it's not good to wear yourself out. I think the equivalent would be you're going to burn yourself out. And it's not good to burn yourself out or wear yourself out. But in saying that, do you know what we are called to do? Pour ourselves out. So in trying to avoid burnout, don't allow a mentality that says, therefore, I should avoid any kind of hard effort. So that's not, that is not found in Scripture. Because remember, Jesus is the one that says, follow me, even if they want to kill you, follow me. That's some pretty hard effort there, isn't it? So, um, so we are to love and serve him with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, and strength. And we are to keep his commandments, and they are for our good. We're there in verse 13. Do, do, walking in the ways of the Lord are for you. Oh, why did God give so many commandments? For your good, for my good, for my blessing. Now, we're in the Old Covenant. And, and they're, they're coming out of slavery. They're coming into um, this new land. They don't have a court system. They don't have um, a worship system. They don't have laws to govern their land and the farming of the land and all the rest. And the Lord says, let me give you something. And he gave them the, the, you know, the book of the law, the covenant. These are the kinds of things that you can eat. These are the things you don't eat. This is how you work the land. This is how you give. This is how you take care of the poor. This is the, these are the, how you deal with idolatry. All of that. I mean, can you imagine if you decided today you were going to walk somewhere with two million people and you had no frame of reference for any of this and you wanted to start a nation? I don't think LegalZoom can help you that much, okay? So, I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? 
God says, let me give you, let me download a nation building packet for you. How, how kind of the Lord, right? And so I think sometimes as we read through the New Testament and we see Paul attacking those that want to use the Old Covenant as a means to find justification, he attacks it hard. And I think sometimes we walk away feeling like, oh, Old Covenant bad, New Covenant good. That's the wrong mentality. Old Covenant fulfilled in the New Covenant. That's what we should think. But it's, it's for their good. It's for their blessing. So we do find our practice and our theology from the New Testament, not the old, but there are plenty of principles as we're discovering as we go through. Like, okay, you know, fear God, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commandments. Timeless truths, no matter what covenant you're in, right? So, um, you know, this is what you're always trying to ask yourself as you go through the Old Testament. You know, you know this truth, this experience. So New Testament too. There could be historical things. Is that just is that a timeless truth, or is that just a happening, or is that an old covenant? Uh, well, verses fourteen and fifteen, uh, we find that God had chose Israel. A repeated theme. He says, "Then I will give you rain." I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 11 and go back to one. It says, indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people as it is this day. Wow. And now God has chosen you, individuals under the new covenant. He chooses people. He chose you. I mean, you can look and say, well, man, chosen nation. They've got, a, they, they've got a favor. They do have a favor. But God chose you as an individual to be a part of being a recipient of his love. And it should result in motivating us to follow and do those five things. Fear God, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commandments. Verses 16 through 19 those impacted by the love of God will show love and compassion to, the, to vulnerable people. Look at that. Um, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens. So he says, listen, the same thing that is going to happen to these nations could happen to you. Verse 18, therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Oh, man, I did that again. I moved into chapter 11. Golly. <laughs> Don't look at that one. Okay. Uh, start over. Rewind. Let's try this again. Verse 16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice to the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And again, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. You shall hold fast. You shall make oaths in his name. So, um, God, they are chosen. And that kind of love should impact us in the way in which we treat people. I think there's a little, you know, uh, picture of that when Jesus said, well, you've received mercy from me, now show mercy to others. And if you don't show mercy to others, then I'm not going to show you mercy. If you've been impacted genuinely by the mercy of God, you will, that love is going to flow from your life to others. Um, you know, it's a great thing when you see your own sinfulness because it helps you to treat other people well. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, those that are destitute, bankrupt spiritually. It's a blessing when you come to the realization that you are bankrupt spiritually, right? Because when you're bankrupt spiritually, now you can actually repent and you can have uh, the kingdom of heaven. And, um, you know, but then the Lord goes on and talks about mourning. He talks about, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, being meek is not being weak. Being meek is having a proper view of yourself and having the ability to do harm to somebody else but controlling that because of the favor and the grace that's been shown to you. That's meekness. Anybody that thinks that's weakness has never ever tried to be meek because it is not a weak man's sport to be meek, is it? It, is, it will take all that you have to be meek. But when you've had a proper view of yourself, and the Sermon on the Mount is where I'm quoting from, uh, Matthew chapter 5, when you have a proper view of yourself that I have sinned and you're broken in spirit, now you can be meek towards others because you know what it's like to be there. You were there once yourself. And now you're going to treat people with this love and the kindness. And so the Lord talks about um, who they should be kind to and who they should be gentle with. They should, you know, to the stranger, to the fatherless, to the widow. You read through the minor, major prophets. This is the reason and the breaking of the covenant, worshiping other gods. Worshiping other gods and not being kind and generous to the fatherless, the widow, and the stranger are the reasons why God exiled them. I mean, you, 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 if you, once you hear that and you read the Old Testament prophets, you cannot unhear it because it's everywhere. But this is why God judged them. Because of the relationship with him, the covenant, and the way they were treating other people. Um, so fear the Lord. Um, let me just say something about fear, the fear of the Lord here. Um, what does it mean? Does it mean to be afraid? Yeah. Actually, it, that, that, that is one of the meanings of this word, is to have fear, to be afraid. Um, does it mean to uh, have reverence um, and, uh, and awe? Yes, it means that too. So um, we should always have an awe and a reverence for the Lord, but if you're thinking about going and sinning, you should have a dread for what could happen to you when Almighty God gets his hands on you. I know I did it with my dad, <laughs> my mom. Eh, not so much my mom, a little bit for my mom, you know. You know, dad was, wait till your dad gets home. That's how it went, you know. Not that I got away with stuff with my mom, I didn't. But, yeah, I was a strong-willed child. I was that child. And so dad's name, and so, yeah, when dad came in, there was some fear. I, there were plenty of times, not out of respect for my dad, but there are times when I contemplated doing something and I then thought through the consequences of what that was going to be like when I got caught. And I said, no, nah, I'm not going. And so I think both of them are, are, are present. But we're to, we're to have a fear, which leads to us serving the Lord. Verse 21, 22, chapter 10, read it right, Troy. Um, he is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things. Things. I think we should reserve the word awesome for things that relate to God. No, I'm not trying to make a biblical point, but just I think we overuse some words. Awesome. God is awesome. 
the things he does, those things are great and awesome. That's hard for a Californian. But anyway, the things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in the multitude. You started with 70, and now there's millions of you. Great and awesome. Worship him. You know, so important that we worship. I think this is one of the problems with a lot of believers is they, they're not thankful and they're not worshiping. So it keeps us from joy and it keeps us from hope. It keeps us from joy because we're not being reminded of all that we have. You can be loaded down with stuff and you just kind of forget about it. And so being thankful and worshiping, it reminds you of all that you have. So it brings joy. But it also has hope when you're in difficulty because if you're being thankful for all that God has done in the past, you now have hope for your present trial that you are in. Try it. You'll see it to be true. Chapter 11, a chapter I can't wait to get to, evidently. Um, uh, more along the same lines of remembering and obeying. In verses 1 through 7, the commandment is to walk in obedience because of what they had seen the Lord do for them. So it's kind of coming again out of the end of that chapter 10. Um, and, and as you, you move through this, you just see that the Lord, he says, therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments. Therefore takes us back into the previous chapter, which tells us, think of all that God has done, those great and awesome things. So now, knowing that, it helps you to walk in obedience. And then there is the commandment that they should um, teach their kids um, in, the, in the ways of the Lord. Um, so, you know, this is, this is a, something that the Lord is like, you remember what you've done, you're going to go in, verse 8, you're going to have this wonderful land that's flowing with blessing and privilege, but you've got to make certain that you teach your children. You've got to make certain. Now, he says in verse 2, I'm talking to you and I'm not speaking with your children. But then he's going to come and he's going to command them to teach their children to help them understand the things that the Lord is wanting to do with them. And so, you know, this is, this is so important. Let's pick up reading there at verse 8. Therefore you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess, that you may prolong your days in the land the Lord swore to give you. There's always this to prolong your days. God is announcing you're going to rebel and you're going to go out. But the longer you obey me, the longer you're going to stay in the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed. Um, you know, and you know, it was kind of a, 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 a Nile flooding type of a, a situation. You're waiting for it to, to, no, this is different. God's going to give you rain and he's going to send it down. And you're going to have springs and you're, it's going to be different. Verse 12, a land which the Lord your God um, uh, cares for his eyes the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to every end of the year you ever wonder why Satan fights so much for this land that's why because God cares about it it's simple anything that God cares about Satan hates does God care about you yes and so his eyes are continually upon you and Satan is always trying to destroy and corrupt and he just talks about the rain that they're going to have year by year. 
Um, verse 18, therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers. Again, it's like there, you, there's going to come a time when you're not going to be in there. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast, then the Lord will drive out these nations from before you which you will dispossess, greater and mightier nations than yourselves. And so he's just encouraging them to walk in obedience. He says, your children don't know this. You know this, but you got to teach your children. you got to make certain that you pour the truth into their heart and into their life. And this is the, the, you know, we talked about this in our last study again, but here's the word I would say to you. Don't let the world and social media out-talk you with your children. That's, and that's going to mean you're going to do a lot of talking. You're like, oh, but I'm so tired when I get home from work. You can sleep later. Because here's the thing. This is, this is really true in raising our children. And if you think, oh, I'm going to put it off when they're young, and I'll wait later, I'll wait later, it's either pay me now or pay me a whole lot later. But you're going to pay. So you're thinking that you're getting rest, but, that, but if you keep pushing that off, you're just, if I can use this, um, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I mean, it's, it's coming. It, you're it, you're going to have to have that investment. But you can, you can do it on your own terms of teaching and instructing and always talking about the things of the Lord. Or you can just, you know, um, wait till circumstance demands it. And then it's going to be really painful. So teach your children. Don't let the world out-talk you. And you're going to have to do a whole lot of talking. And, and if you're like, I just don't know. Well, hey, to the humble, God gives more grace. And so tell them of the ways of the Lord. Speak to them of the beauty of the ways of the Lord. So in verses 22 um, through 25, still there in chapter 11, uh, the Lord begins to speak about the invincibility that they are going to experience. Um, and so let's see what verse do I want to come to. I read a few of these. All right, verse 24, look at this. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Can you put that image up, that, that picture there? Can you guys see that? Right? Can you see what looks like a sandal print or a footprint? Do you see that? So this is a little, little I think it's about, don't quote me, but it's like, I think about a three-foot wall, um, about three acres. It's big. And um, they have found six of these going up the central um, hills of Israel. Kind of you come across Jericho, and then you head north. Don't go up to Jerusalem, but you kind of go up the, heading north. And you go, you'll find six of them. And, uh, it, you know, people are like, what in the world are these things? In every one of these, there's an altar. And there, you cannot say, all right, there's not enough information to say definitively. You certainly cannot say it with biblical certainty. But what is believed? Now, everything to do with the conquest, and we'll talk about this later. Um, most modern 
Archaeologists do not believe in a literal exodus, nor do they believe in a literal conquest. And so um, they never date things that would align with the Bible. It's usually 200 years off. So if you read, you'll you'll find that. They're going to say this is around 1200 B.C., um, you know, and, you know, when this happened. Uh, to, you know, 1400 BC, but Israel doesn't come into the land until 1200. So it's always 200 years off. So Jericho was not destroyed by the Israelites because they didn't come for 200 more years. So there is dispute about the, the dating of this. However, Bible-believing scholars, and not to overstate it or oversell it, but they are really believing, no, these things are dating um, to the time of um, the conquest, 1400 BC. And so you, there's plenty to get out there and read. But I, I just find this like so fascinating. It's like they read verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. And they're like, let's make a big hang tin right here. Let's make a big footprint right here. And let's put an altar in here and let's worship the Lord as they went through the conquest. There is no other explanation that even remotely begins to make sense. I don't want to oversell it, but I'm just, like, I, I think this is, these are the Israelite encampments during the conquest. That's what I really believe. Um, you know, they're continuing to work on these. Um, one of these is found at Mount Ebal, which is, uh, and we're going to talk more about this later, but this is where they just found a, a, a little tablet that dates to that time frame at um, the altar site there at Mount Ebal, which is actually in the next verses. Um, you see this, verses 26 through 32. He says, when you go into the land, um, speak of the blessings and the cursings. When we get to chapter 27, we're going to read it in detail, but that's what they talk about um, uh, that the nation should do. So you see in verse 29, now shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So on Mount Gerizim, they shouted down the blessings for obeying the, the, the Lord. On Mount Ebal, they shouted down the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed the Lord. And so it was meant to be a graphic reminder. You know, be a Mount Gerizim Israelite. Don't be a Mount Ebal <laughs> Israelite. And the same can be said for us, the blessings of following the Lord and walking in his ways. If you're not walking in the ways of the Lord and your life is miserable, don't blame him. He told you. He's warned you. He sent people to you. He has sent pastors and tracts and sermons on the radio and dreams and visions and grandma and mom and dad who won't leave you alone. And you went and you, you did it anyway. Don't get mad at God. Just repent and look for the grace of God in in your disobedience and watch how he will show up. Chapter 12. Definitely not getting in chapter 15. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. That's because you guys don't listen fast enough. That's That's the real problem here. So chapter 12, um, and that's, this is probably as far as we're going to get, but we'll see. But this is a chapter that it calls the nation of Israel to, be, to remain separate in worship. Um, nothing new that we haven't heard, but it's just, again, we find it. Chapter, one, or chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which... The Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you shall live on the earth. 
You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. Any idolatrous site. On the high mountains, on the high hills, under every green tree. So these are the, the sites where they would go and they would worship um, their idols. And you shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Don't try to bring them into worship of me. You did that once with the golden calf. I didn't like it. So they, you know, when they said the golden calf, they did not give the golden calf an Egyptian name. That was Yahweh. In the days of Jeroboam, the same thing. Um, they worshipped, you know, the golden calf at um, Bethel, and they worshipped worshipped up at Dan. Which, by the way, if you when you go to Israel, you can still see the altar there in Dan where they worshipped the golden calf. It's really amazing to me that it's still there, but but it is. And they worshipped these golden calves, but they didn't they didn't say like, hey, oh, this is you know, um, Asherah or this is Baal. They said this is Yahweh. So they, they tried to kind of take from the world and they, they blended it together with the true faith, the true uh, word of God, and they corrupted it. And he says, I'm not going to tolerate that either. So have nothing to do with it and then don't try and, and incorporate it, um, which things king, some of the kings of Israel did indeed do. They set up altars to Molech even in the temple. So um, get rid of these gods. This is what he um, challenges and exhorts them to do. In verses 5 through 28, um, God gives them instruction on where and how they should worship him. In verse 11 of chapter 12, it says, Then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses. And of course, you know, eventually that's going to become Jerusalem. To make his name abide, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you and your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your gate, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourselves that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. So, you know, wherever that tabernacle was in the early days, um, Shiloh was a, one of the places that they set up that tabernacle and was there for hundreds of years. So he, he's telling them how, to, how and where they should worship. And um, we come back again, and he tells them in verse 12 that they are to come before the Lord with rejoicing. You know, when they came to the house of the Lord, they are to come with great joy and excitement. Um, verses 15 through 28, we already talked about this a couple of times. Um, he says, you can eat what you want that is clean, but don't make a sacrifice or, um, um, or don't eat unclean things, then don't make a, a sacrifice or a vow unless you take it to the priest. You don't get to be a priest. Again, another one of the sins of Jeroboam is that he allowed everybody that wanted to be a priest to come in, not just the Levites. And then in verses 29, so move to the end of the chapter, 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from you 
The nations which go to dispossess, you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I want to do it that way. I'll do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful. We've heard that a few times, haven't we? Be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So we, they're exhorted, have nothing to do with Baal, have nothing to do with Asherah, have nothing to do with their gods. Don't do it the way they did it. Don't think about it. Be careful. Be mindful. Don't get ensnared. You know, watch out and don't fall in this way. We likewise, though, in the New Testament, this same principle of not being ensnared and obeying the Lord completely and having nothing to do with the ungodly world is a, a principle that carries over into the New Testament. First, or 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 14, all the way down to chapter 7, verse 1, reads, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. I will be father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1, therefore having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Knowing that we are going to have God walking among us, we're going to be his sons and his daughters. Man, let's perfect holiness in the fear of God. Let's walk this out. The word there in verse 17 uh, for separate, aphorizo, uh, and I found, found this really interesting. And you got the definition there for you. To remove one party from other parties as to discourage or eliminate contact. I mean, separate, capture, I mean, that, yeah, separate does that. But just to hear that, to remove one party from other parties so as to discourage or eliminate contact. And based on the context of what we just read, it's eliminate. I mean, there's no problem doing this and using the idea of eliminate because, you know, what part has Christ with Belial? None, right? What is fellowship as light and darkness? None. And so don't be among the world and walk in this. We are to eliminate contact with anyone or anything that would lead us astray from fellowship with the Lord. Paul to the Ephesians, in a more succinct manner, put it like this. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We don't align ourselves with them. We actually stand against that. Romans 12, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So just as the nation of Israel is called 
to come out and be separate and be careful to walk in holiness, this same truth, this same principle is for us. Would it bother any of you? The answer is yes. If I had up here uh, a table, I mean, well, you came to the communion table. If you came up there and there are all these little figurines, a Baal, an Asherah, and a little Buddha over here, I mean, I hope one of you would have turned the table over and ran me out. I mean, it's just at least one of you, right? I mean, that, how offensive that that would be at the table of the Lord. Are you kidding me? And there should be a, 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 an outrage against us. Not an ungodly anger, but a righteous anger. And, and so we are told not to have anything to do. So if, if that would bother you, well, you're the temple of God. You're the temple of God. And the third person of the Godhead dwells within you. And so don't have any unrighteous, any unrighteousness in your heart and your life. Don't have any, um, you know, work of darkness going on. And so if we are falling into sin because of a relationship with a person or a thing, the Lord says, eliminate that contact. Wow, that seems kind of, that kind of seems extreme. Yeah, I think that's exactly the idea here. Jesus put it this way. If your right eye offends you, go to the eye doctor. And if he says it's bad, put a patch over it and really try and nurse it back to health. Right? No. He says, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out and throw it away. What is he saying? Well, yeah, he's, he's giving us an illustration of how radical we are to get with darkness and sin in our life. But I think a lot of us are like, well, I know this is not good, but how about a doctor? How about a patch? How about, how about I figure out a way? I, you know, eye drops maybe, or I just, you know, I'll just look harder with the left eye than the right. You know, no, the Lord says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. I... I'm not going to go through a list of what those things could be because if you are willing to, the Holy Spirit will show you right now because he dwells within you. He will tell you what unsettles him. He will tell you what he finds displeasing. If you'll silence your arguments, you know, you, we, me, then we can hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us, Right? And what a blessing it is to hear him speak and to say, be done with these things. Let's pray. Father, we began with an examination of our hearts as we came to your table. And now, Lord, we have spent the last hour here letting your word examine us. You have shined your light of the word deep into our hearts and our minds, into our hurts, into our pains, and into the secret places. Lord, we pray that we would be done with lesser things, knowing the incredible promise that we have that you will dwell with us and walk among us, that you will be our God and that we get to be your people. Lord, what other response can we have than to cleanse ourselves and perfect holiness out of awe and reverence and faith and fear of you. Thank you, Lord.